I'm hoping today that we will be stirred and be able to comprehend in a greater way how true the words are that we sang, how great a God we have, how infinite he is, perfect in power. There's nothing that he cannot do, perfect in his love, perfect in his purity, his holiness. There's no one like the living God we serve. And the God of the Bible is someone who has revealed himself in his greatness, not only in his person, but in the fact that he is on mission to restore a broken and fallen humanity. And the whole of the Bible is really an unfolding of his mission over the centuries of time to accomplish that fact, to bring us back to him. And Nehemiah, the book that we've been studying, is a part of that restoration history. The series we've been studying is entitled Restoration. And my granddaughter, Lily, and uh, Gabe's here with me today. Lily went out, I think, to the kids' program. But I was at, uh, with Lily at her house about a week ago, and she came up to me and she said, Poppy, do you know what my favorite Christian song is? I said, no, Lily, what's your favorite Christian song? God is on the move. And she called to Alexa to play it. And Alexa started playing and she started dancing. God is on the move, on the move, hallelujah. God is on the move in many mighty ways. She did it a little faster. She did a lot better. <laughs> Sorry, she's not here. She probably would have done it. Actually, it's probably good that she's not here. <laughs> and you know, that's exactly it. God's on the move. He's always been on the move. And I pray that we can capture some of the childlike excitement of my granddaughter when she just sang something so simple but yet so profound. He's on the move in many mighty ways. We've come to a significant moment in the story of Nehemiah. They're constructing or reconstructing the walls that had been broken down and we come to the place where the wall is finished. And we're just looking at two verses today. Two verses out of Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, verses 15 and 16. And no, that does not mean that because we're doing two verses that the message is shorter. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, it describes it this way. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The work was finished. Those broken down, burned out walls, gates that had surrounded Jerusalem were completely restored. Some two and a half miles around the circumference of uh, Jerusalem. Totally restored in 52 days. I wish we could get a road repaired in Brunswick in 52 days. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, North Carpenter, man, I wish that only took 52 days. But it, it, it talks about these two important truths that the wall is finished. It speaks of restoration. It speaks to this whole thing. The walls were restored. Secondly, it speaks about the fact that God helped them. And God wants to help his people. And those are the two major themes today. It's all we're going to talk about. Restoration and God's help. Now, I entitled the message, The Walls Are Finished, or The Wall Is Finished, Selah. 
Selah is a Hebrew word that the origin of which and the meaning of which it cannot be determined with absolute certainty. But Bible scholars believe that as it appears about 71 times in the book of Psalms, it means to pause. It may indicate a musical interlude. And when that interlude is going on, think about what you just sang. We would in our vernacular say, hey, we need to chew on that a little bit. And the truths, we do too little of that as a people, don't we? We don't think a lot about spiritual things. We don't ponder God a lot. When was the last time you really sat down and thought about something deeply? We need to do more of that. We're, we're kind of chained to the tyranny of the urgent, right? We've got an agenda. I got to go to work. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. But God wants us to selah. And this is a selah message. So I hope it doesn't bore you. But listen, I don't care. It's, we're going to reflect. Okay, we're going to reflect because this is something God wants us to do today. He wants us to pause. So let's talk about, let's see love for a few moments on restoration. What, when you, whenever you bring up the word restoration, there's an assumption there. Something that once had value, beauty, whatever, has deteriorated or it has suffered some kind of catastrophic loss, right? You don't drive a car out of the showroom and it doesn't need restored, Unless you have an accident along the way somewhere. But it's new. But if you acquire a 57 Chevy out of the junkyard, hey, it's lost its whole glory, what it once had in 1957. I use 1957 because I was born in 1957. And I've lost a lot too. I need some restoration, you know. Years take its toll, right? You guys, oh boy. You with me? Okay. Years take its toll. And it, we need restored. And anybody who's had a home fire knows what this is about. You know, even if the fire is contained, if the house isn't destroyed, all the water and smoke damage, even if it's contained to one section, it has permeated the whole home. And what was once a place of safety and shelter and comfort has been totally destroyed and they have to move out. That house needs a restoration. It does not need like a remodeling project. You know, it's not like you're upgrading the cabinets in the kitchen. It needs, everything needs to be redone. And friends, this, this wall around Jerusalem is being completed. But the fact that it was in ruin speaks to the devastation of sin. The wall was ruined because of sin. Human sin has brought devastation to the state in which God created us. He, get, he created us in the garden to have fellowship with him, unhindered, unbroken, perfect in every way. And Adam and Eve were meant to enjoy that perfect fellowship until they sinned. And that sin brought devastation to them. The story of Nehemiah affirms this. The, rem the remnant who is in uh, coming back, you remember the word that uh, Nehemiah gets at the beginning of the book from his brother? He asks, how's it going in Jerusalem? And he says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Why? In one word, it's sin. Some 500 years before this, Solomon built that temple. And when he built the temple in 953, it was dedicated, 953 BC. At the dedication, it's recorded in scripture that as they offered sacrifices on the altar, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the glory of God's presence appeared in that temple. And a cloud appeared and it says the priests couldn't even do their work. Imagine if a cloud just appeared. 
And we couldn't see each other. I couldn't see the music. We couldn't, and we just sensed God is here. The presence of God is here. It was glorious. And this is something to ponder today to Selah about. Do you know that God, the God of the universe, wants to be near you? Think about that for a minute. God wants to be near you. The God who created this universe, who made everything there is, he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be close to you. He wanted, that's why he came to the temple. His pre- he wants to be with his people. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's his great desire. So why, what happened What happened? That's the way that the temple started. Well, in those 400 years or less after that, less than 400 really, the temple was destroyed in 587 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. And the people are led into this 70-year exile. And they're done so because of sin. Sin always brings devastation. God says, follow me. Believe in me. I love you. I want to be with you. Honor me as your God. Follow my commands. And nobody did it. They strayed from him. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there wasn't one king, not one king in the history of the northern ten tribes of Israel who followed after God. They were actually destroyed earlier and exiled, never to return. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered them. Now the southern two tribes of Judah did a little better. There were a few godly kings who brought reform. But by and large, the people left him. And God sent prophets He says, don't do this. Turn back to me. Don't serve other gods. Believe in me. I love you. I want to be with you. And prophet after prophet, and finally, judgment comes. Do you know, friends, that sin, the message that we got to ponder on today, sin is awful. I don't care what you think about it. I know what God thinks about it. It's awful, and it devastates people. And the essence of sin is autonomy. The word autonomy is made up of two root words, autos, which means self, and nomos, which means law. Therefore, a person is autonomous if they are a law unto themselves. And that is the essence, my friend, of sin. Jesus confirmed that the greatest commandment is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Friends, if that is the greatest commandment, it, to love the Lord, then the greatest and most fundamental sin is to go rogue on him and to say, no, I'm going to live apart from him. I'm going to do the thing I want to do. I don't care what God says. I'll live the way I want to live. It's that invictus spirit. The poet, William Ernest Henley, uh, ended his famous poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Friends, that's in all of us. We all want to run our own lives. God, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Adam and Eve followed the path of autonomy. God told them, don't do this. You can have everything here, everything, but don't do that. No, I want that. And I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Listen, the broken and burned out stones of the walls around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day were the result of people who chose to live in autonomy apart from God. And the broken walls can be seen as a symbol of the brokenness that anyone will ultimately experience if they live apart from God. 
I'm reading a book by Abd, Abdu Murray. He's a, a former Muslim who has uh, accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. It was a nine-year journey, he writes. And he says, it, it didn't take me that long to understand the truth, but it took me that long to accept it, he said. And he has accepted that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And he wrote a book called Saving Truth. And it, he uh, mentions in that book that Oxford dictionaries annually select a word of the year that tries to capture the current mood and the perspective of culture. In 2016, Oxford dictionaries selected the, the term post-truth. Okay, post-truth as their word of the year. The statement they issued is this. Post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, it doesn't matter what the fact. Don't, it, I don't want to do that. I don't care. And speaking of this, Abdu Murray says this, the post-truth mindset acknowledges objective truth, but subordinates it to preferences. In other words, I'm not going to align my life with the truth. I'm going to align my life with what I want to do. Even if I know this is true, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Is that a sign of our times? It's not new, though. It was back in the Garden of Eden. Autonomy always leads to truth being ignored. And there's a cost. Autonomy has a cost. Jesus said that if people were to believe in him, and if they would abide in his words, in other words, do what he told them, he said they would know the truth. And what, what would happen then? The truth would set them free. Now the people push back on that. They said, well, we're, not, we're not slave to anybody. Okay, but Jesus says, wait a minute, anyone who sins becomes a slave to sin. If you become autonomous and move apart from, from God, you, you become enslaved. See, that's the paradox. This was so crazy. In pursuing and trying to be free, you become enslaved. And it's true, and you become blind to the fact that you're even enslaved. How relevant is the words of Jesus? How relevant is the Bible? In other words, following your desire to satisfy your base passions enslaves you to sexual sin. Following your desire for more possessions enslaves you to materialism. You never have enough. It's like you're in a prison that I, I got to keep getting more. If you reject, here's another example. If you reject God's command to forgive others, you become enslaved in a prison of bitterness. <laughs> Seeking to be free. No, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care. I don't care. You become enslaved. And the danger of autonomy is this. Your heart will become darkened. So that you cannot even see. Jesus said to the... Listen, he wrote these words to a church. A first century church received these words. Not the world. For, I say, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. But realizing that... Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, autonomy will blind you. Paul said in Romans, seeking to be wise or claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images or idols. Other things became their God. They exchanged. Listen, you could belong to God. You could serve him and love him and this God that wants to provide for you and help you and 
Instead, he said, people, some people in their quest for autonomy, they throw that away. And they said, no. And they exchanged the glory of God for other idols. Friends, sin always leads to devastation. It always leads to God's judgment. That's one of the, the truths to ponder today. It's true in, the, in Nehemiah's day. It was true in Adam and Eve's day. It's true in our day, okay? Sin will always lead you to God's judgment. But here's the good news, friends. It's turning now. <laughs> the message of the Bible is that God is a redeeming, restoring God who wants to bring out of the brokenness of human autonomy and sin forgiveness and restoration. He wants to take that 57 Chevy and make it into something beautiful like it was in the garden, okay? Figuratively speaking, I, I know you know that. The Serve Pro is a restoration company in our day, and they have an advertising slogan. I don't know if they live up to it or not, but uh, Jim might know, but uh, it says this, like it never even happened. Those of you who have experienced some kind of loss, Serve Pro says, we'll come in, we'll restore it like it never even happened. Friends, the exciting thing about the story of the Bible is there's a God who is providentially moving throughout all of human history so that he can bring a fallen sinful humanity ultimately back to the place they were in the garden like it never even happened. Yeah, that's it, you're starting to come alive. <laughs> You ought to because this is, ponder this. Think about this. What are we doing here? We're here because God has done something so awesome. He's such an awesome God. I'm glad you got out of bed today. Sometimes we think we're doing really good. Oh, I, mean, I went to church. You know. Bring God your worship. Bring your whole heart to him because he's a great restorer. Selah. <laughs> Let it sink into your heart. He's a great restorer. He wants to return to you what's been stolen, what's been taken from you, what you've lost because of your own choices and sin and my choices. I don't mean to single you out. I'm in this. And friends, I want you to know that God wants to help us. That's the second great theme of this passage. It says that they, the enemies of Nehemiah, perceived that this work of rebuilding the wall had been accomplished with the help of our God. It was very apparent to the enemies of Nehemiah that this wall getting rebuilt in 52 days, was not. they had some supernatural help with this. God was with them. And I want to just uh, give you some big picture things here. Hang with me on this. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Think about this a second. In other words, Jesus is described as the one whom God had in eternity past a plan to redeem fallen human beings even before he created the world, even before the fall happened. What kind of God can do that? What kind of God sees into the eternity past just like he can see into eternity future? How great is this God? I've been here 62 years on this earth. What is 62 years? It's nothing. Nothing. Pick up one grain of sand on the largest beach you can do. It's not even, that's not even a good comparison. God is big. Before the world was even formed, he had it in his heart. 
that his own son would come and die for our sins so that we could be restored. Friends, he's providentially moving. You remember that right after the fall, let me remind you a couple other things that are in the Bible that show you that this has always been God's plan. He's on mission. God is on the move. My granddaughter is right. Lily is absolutely right. He's on the move. And even right after uh, Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what God said to, to Satan, to the serpent. He said this, hang with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Listen, he, the offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head. He will give you a fatal blow. And you shall bruise his heel. He speak, God is speaking in the Bible prophetically. Eve, I'm going to send a descendant. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to deal the death blow to Satan. But Satan's going to bruise his heel at the cross. He's going to cause him to suffer. Listen, from the, Selah. Think about this. Think about Abraham. So God calls this man Abram and he gives him a promise. That one of his descent, through one of his descendants, every people in every place will be blessed. And who's Jesus a descendant of? Abraham. So he sends his own. And then the Bible uses types. You understand what I'm saying? Types. Like there'll be situations, people, or events that happen that really are typifying something God's going to do in the future. So when Abraham is called to offer his son Isaac on that altar as a burnt offering, of course God stops his hand. But what is it a type of? God the Father's going to send his own son. And he's going to put him on that altar of sacrifice for our sins. Joseph is a type of Christ. He was sold and rejected by his brothers, delivered into the hands of his enemies. And Joseph, though, ends up saving people from their physical, from physical death, doesn't he? In fact, uh, he says, Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going too fast. My, my mind's ahead of my mouth. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so excited about this. <clears throat> Jesus, though rejected by his own, Save the people from spiritual famine and death. Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that I might save many people from death. He's a type of Christ who came, and although there was evil intent for those who put him to death, God meant it for good, that many people could be saved of their sins. Oh, this is so awesome. Moses is a type of Christ. He leads the people out of bondage in Egypt. And he says, God's going to raise up a prophet from, uh, like me from among you. Listen to him. Jesus is that prophet. And he leads them out of the bondage of sin and slavery to sin. Come on. Why, is it, why did that happen the way it did? God is he's, he's providentially orchestrating the events of human history. So that you and I can comprehend the greatness of what he's doing. And the providential working is in the time of the exiles. God providentially, you know, they were taken into that 70-year captivity just before Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And in 538 BC, God providentially moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to allow the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem. How great is our God? He, he governs the affairs of world leaders and nations. I want to encourage you. You think the world's a mess and our world leaders and there's all the political... Da, 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 da. Do you know God's in charge? 
God is in charge. He's, he's working circumstances. Even he, can, he works through this, friends. And he's working to accomplish his purposes. So Cyrus lets the people come back. He's on the move. He's working out the restoration mission. And then Nehemiah returns. And then he helps these returning exiles rebuild this second temple and rebuild the walls. Why? Because he's on the move. And I want to tell you something. Solomon's temple had the presence of God in a cloud. But the second temple that Nehemiah built the walls around had a far greater glory even than that because God incarnate walked through there. God incarnate was the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ walked into those temple gates. <laughs> and so you see in the story God's providential dealings Nehemiah says that he was granted favor from the king. He says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Don't you know that God will be with you? The scripture says that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth. And I love when the Bible uses this kind of figurative language as if God has two eyes, he's searching. All. He's everywhere, but he's looking for people. He wants to help people whose hearts are fully devoted to him. He helped Nehemiah, he'll help you. He works inside human hearts. Nehemiah says, what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Do you know God stirs hearts? It's not a preacher. It's not a musician. It's the Holy Spirit that touches your heart. And he touched Nehemiah's heart. And he, he put something in the heart of Nehemiah's heart to do. Oh, I love it. He's providentially moving. And then when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem greatly opposed God's restoration work, the Lord providentially protected them when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that um, heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Nehemiah's story is just part of a great narrative. The restoration in that day is preparing the way for this restoration. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Nehemiah is on the way to Jesus. He lived some 400 years before Jesus was going to be born. He's on the way to Jesus. His mission is partly fulfilling a, a piece of God's restoration plan. And you know, you and I, friends, are on the way to Jesus' return. That's where we're living. He's already come once. He's already died on the cross. He was risen from the dead. to bear, He bare our sins. And now you and I are on the way to Jesus' return. And we are on the way to restoration's completion. This is a work that's taking centuries. What's the longest rehab project you've done, Jim? <laughs> I mean, you probably worked a couple of years on something. But he's working over centuries to restore and bring back what we've lost. And I want to, listen, I'm at the end of the message, I promise. As sure as God moved providentially to facilitate, facilitate Jesus' coming, the first time. He is working even now providentially toward the set day of Jesus' return. 
And when he comes, every enemy will finally and forever be defeated. Even that great enemy that the Bible calls our last great enemy, death itself. He's coming to restore and complete this restoration process. We're on the way to him. Okay? It's coming. If he, if he came the first time and you see what's happened here, we have more revelation than Nehemiah did. He's coming again. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ will be present for all eternity in the presence of this loving, eternal God who wants to be with us. He will be their God and they will be his people and will finally be free from the sin of the curse of sin, fully restored. Selah. Let that sink in. You're on the way there. So what do we do? Just some applications. When confronted with the brokenness caused by sin, what did Nehemiah do? He humbled himself. He called out to God. He cried out to him and he confessed, God, I've sinned. My people have sinned. We haven't been where, you know, you haven't been number one in our lives. We haven't, we haven't loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forgive us. Forgive me. I've sinned. My father has sinned, he said. Please forgive me. And listen, when confronted with sin, Nehemiah shows us the path that we should follow. We need to have broken, contrite hearts before him and confess our sins to him. I don't know where you're at tonight, uh, today. I don't know where, what you're dealing with, but confess to the Lord. You know, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. And you know what? Nehemiah did something else very important. He trusted. He had faith. He acted in faith in what God had promised. Part of his prayer. You go back and reread it in chapter 1. But he says, God, we've sinned. We've fallen short. We brought this on ourselves. In essence, he's saying these things. We were led into exile because we, we led our own way. We went our own way. We rejected you. But God, remember when you said, if we would turn back to you, that you'd bring us back. <sighs> See, he, he's praying in faith. He's saying, God, but listen, you promised. I trust that promise, God. And, and look at what unfolded in his life. And if you will pray that same prayer, God, but you've promised I'm a terrible sinner. But you promised if I would repent and turn to you, you would heal me. You would forgive me. You promised if I put my faith in Jesus Christ that you'd forgive me of my sins, cleanse me of all unrighteousness, create in me a new heart, give me a new direction, take away this bent toward autonomy. Lord, may God help us here today. And if you're, even if you're a Christian, is, are there pockets of where you're autonomous in your life that you won't surrender to him? Come before him, confess, God, you know already that this is in my life. Forgive me. Come, come and cleanse me. Help me. He'll do that for you. Secondly, I think there's a message of perseverance in, this, in the text. The people who rebuilt the wall, you know, the Bible is so honest. I love the Bible. It, it's like 
they faced discouragement. You know, at one point in chapter four, it's like the people started saying, the rubble's too much. This is too big. I don't know what's in your life that's just too much. I don't know what you're facing that's too much. You may be discouraged. You might be here today terribly discouraged. But Nehemiah, remember what he said? He said to the people in Nehemiah 4.14, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. His answer to, them, to, his, to our discouragement, Remember God. Remember who he is. Remember what he can do. Don't give up. And then lastly... Hand me another brick. Hand me another brick. Pastor Sean preached last week and he gave this. This has been sticking with me all week. This book that Charles Swindoll had written with this title, Hand Me Another Brick, about the life of Nehemiah. And I just can't get it out of my head. Hand me another brick, God. You're at work in this world. I want to be a part of that. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to be, hand me another brick to place in this wall of destruction of sin around me. Hand me another brick. Let me take the next step personally. Let me take the next step in my life. Let me build in, into other people. Let me tell them of this God. There's so many people. Look at how many empty seats we have. There's so many people that don't know him. Hand me another brick. Keep going, Hope Church. Hand me another brick. Keep being a part of the work. And do you know that the wall, I thought of this this week. Will God help me think of this? The wall in Nehemiah's day is like a type of what God is building spiritually. Peter said this, we are all like living stones. Those of us who believe in Christ, we're like living stones being built into a spiritual house. He says in 1 Peter 2.4. He likens what the wall was physically. God is doing that spiritually. And we're all like living bricks, you know. And God has more bricks out there. They just need to be brought to life and added into the spiritual house. Hand me another brick. How about you? I wish I could have bought bricks and given you a brick to take home, but that's, that's not really practical, huh? Hand me another brick. And, and I want to, last point. Did those walls in Nehemiah's day supernaturally construct themselves? <laughs> did, did all of a sudden they go and they prayed and God just started putting the bricks miraculously up on the building? How did God work? He worked through his people. See, whatever God is going to do in this world, he's going to do through his people. And so I, I'm saying to God, hand me another brick. Help me to do what you want me to do. I want to be involved in it. But we have to do something. We have to cooperate with him. We have to, we have to participate. That's how he works. He works through his people. God is on the move. Song by seventh time down. Anytime a heart turns from darkness to light. Anytime temptation comes and someone stands to fight. Anytime somebody lives to serve and not be served, I know, I know, I know God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. God is on the move in many mighty ways. Anytime in weakness someone falls upon their knees or dares to speak the truth that sets men free, 
Anytime the choice is made to stand upon the word, I know, I know, I know God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. Anytime the gospel stirs a searching soul and someone says, send me, I will go. I know, I know God is on the move. I don't know where you're at today, but I pray that you will submit your heart to this wonderful God who's building a spiritual house and uh, that you would say to him today, God, hand me another brick. Hand me another brick. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who wants to restore, that you care for us and Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us comprehend in a greater way just what a powerful God you are, who you are. May we recognize how kind you are, how passionate you are to save us from sin's destruction. Because Lord, if we ignore such a great salvation, there's really no hope, there's no way. Jesus, you said that anyone who would try to seek to save their life for themselves, live autonomously, they will lose their life eternally. But if any person were to lose his life, give up the right, their perceived right to autonomy and follow you and love you and serve you, you they would be given life. Help us to understand it, God. Help us to confess our sins. Help us to repent and turn from them. Help us to weed out and submit to you and take out these pockets of autonomy that we allow and justify and rationalize in our life. God, the greatest commandment is that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Lord, please, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Then people will know. Just like the people in Nehemiah's day recognized that you were with them. If we love one another and serve you that way, people in our culture are going to know that you're the living God. So Father, I pray that you would hand us all another brick. And after we've served you in that way, hand us another one. And keep handing us bricks until you return, Jesus, to set everything right and usher in this state that we are longing for, all creation is longing for it, the restoration of all things. What a great God you are. Thank you for being on the move. Thank you for being with us. In your name I pray. Amen.